in this EG Property podcast recorded live at the London Real Estate Forum. EG editor Samantha McClary is joined by Pooja Agrawal, Chief Executive of Public Practice, Roxana Fayez, the Mayor of Newham, Kirsten Houston, Partner and Head of Real Estate at Shoesmiths, Thomas and Renshaw, Chief Development Officer, Pocket Living, Kath Shaw, Deputy Chief Executive at Barnet Council, and Lucy Wood, the UK Climate Solutions Leader at Stantec, to debate what progress is being made to go above and beyond planning compliance to deliver better places to live and work and rebuild trust in our communities. Listen in to find out about what role planning policy plays in delivering social value, how developers and planners can maximise social value through collaboration, and what engagement is needed from all stakeholders to lead to more inclusive, sustainable and beneficial projects for communities and society as a whole. Listen in and enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to LREF. I hope you've had a brilliant first day. My name is Sam McLaren, the editor at EG, and you will have realised by now that I'm quite demanding. Really, really happy to be here today and to be talking about such an important subject, social value. And before we get into that conversation, I get our wonderful panel here to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about why social value for each of them. I do have a bit of an apology to make for the complete lack of diversity on the, no token on the panel. Yeah, we tried really hard to get a token man, uh, but, we, but we failed. But forgive us. I was trying to think what the female version of a mammal is, but I was talking with my team and thought, don't say it out loud, because you will say it wrong, and then I'll get fired, and I quite like my job. But enough of that, let's get into this this really interesting conversation. We don't have Slido because I believe in putting up your hand and asking a question. So there will be roving mics. Hold them down, write them down. We'll come to you for questions throughout the session. But let's get right into it and get our panel to introduce themselves. I'm going to go from the very far end to closest to me. So Pooja, please introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Pooja Agrawal. I'm the CEO of a social enterprise called Public Practice. And our mission is to build capacity and skills in uh, the public sector, primarily local government. And actually, we really believe that by building those skills and capability, we can improve the quality, quality and sustainability of places, which very much aligns to social values. So I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. I'm Roxana. I am the re-elected Mayor of Newham. I've been the Mayor of Newham since May 2018. Prior to that, I was a councillor in the London Borough of Newham, and one of the committees that I sat on was Strategic Development Committee, and it ignited my passion on all things spatial planning and placemaking, and building on what Pooja said, and I think public practice do an absolutely fantastic job, not least because of the constraints within the sector and the need for us to always future-proof planning and the development with people that come to ish placemaking and the spatial through, for me, what is fundamental to a global city like London and a diverse borough like Newham, an intercultural lens. And I think there is power and rightfully purpose in enabling 
resident communities to enhance their literacy and understanding in all things planning because if we're genuine about people shaping place then we need to give them the skills for them to be able to do that in a way that I don't think has been sufficiently done so far. Kirsten Hewson, I'm uh, head of the uh, real estate division in law firm Shoesmiths. Um, we're interested really in how we deliver it, so the mechanism to ensure that you know, long term you can actually deliver on social value and that it's not just something that's talked about at the front end and in the planning stage, but it actually delivers for the long term and that we create places that people want to be part of and continue to, to live in and be proud of in, in, for their futures. I'm Tamsin Renshaw, Chief Development Officer at Pocket Living. Um, I also have another role, which is my Executive Director at Broadway Living RP, which is Union Council's um, house building arm. And so social value goes through, obviously, through to the DNA of both organisations that I work for. I feel very passionately about it. And for me, it's actually all about enabling people to live fulfilling and successful lives. And so, frankly, it just touches all of us all of the time. Thank you. I'm Kath Shaw, I'm the Deputy Chief Executive of the London Borough of Barnet. Why am I here? Well, I think we've made really good strides in defining the EBIT of ESG. I think we all know what we need to do there, the how is hard, but we know the what. But I do think we need to make more progress on the S part, the social part. Not to say there isn't, you know, lots of inherent social value in a lot of what goes through the planning system. If you're building homes for <coughs> Londoners to live in, that has a real social value. But we do need to get more thoughtful about how we do it so that it can really benefit our communities. Hi everyone, I'm Lucy. I have been working in consultancy for the best part of two decades now in a lot of our impact assessment work. So we've had environmental impact assessment, health impact assessment, equalities impact assessment, climate change assessment. But what really I think is worthwhile and has definitely changed over the last few years is instead of retrospectively assessing stuff, actually designing properly and embedding all of those considerations in our design process. And at the end of the day, I, I really believe that good design makes absolute, of course it makes social sense, but it makes economic sense too. So really, really pleased to be part of this panel. Thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone. And um, before we get into, I guess, the how do we embed social value into the planning process, into the whole of the built in environment, I guess we need to figure out what we mean when we say social value, because I, I imagine it means different things to different people it might mean great homes for people it might mean jobs for people what do what do we mean up here by social value yeah and fundamentally for me and something that we're presently working through our local plan review process that's underway and we've just concluded regulation 18 and going through um, all the consultation responses it has to be how it elevates people's lives and helps transform and supports what we've placed at the centre of what we want to create as our vision for Newham as a place, the health, wellbeing and happiness of residents and it and I to the experience of the recent past with COVID-19 and the pandemic and the trauma that everyone experienced, but also how it elevated and brought into sharp focus and right to the top of the surface, all those social determinants of ill health inadequate housing, you know, the inability for people to be able to access a labour market for sustainable and living wage jobs. It's all of those things to me. And, you know, we're embracing that philosophy and that frame that very much shapes 
our approach to our local plan? I think, um, I mean, there are several definitions out there, but, but one that I see most regularly and indeed in places like the Social Value Portal, which a lot of people will know from <laughs> procurement processes, and is actually the title can be quite misleading because by social we really mean all of the additional benefits that development can bring in the economic, social and environmental aspects of sustainability. So I think really it's... Of course, all of those, all three pillars ultimately shape people's lives. So, you know, good, great point about health and well-being, but we can't have good health and well-being without healthy environment, without, you know, secure income. So it, it really is, I, in my head, another word for that holistic view of sustainability. Kirsten, I'd be really keen to hear from you from a, from a legal perspective. You know, elevating people's lives sounds brilliant, yeah. but it doesn't sound very legalese to me. How do we, how do we uh, make it... Uh, well, I think that, that that's part of the issue is that you know, the planning system as a whole is looking at, you know, should be looking at great design and creating great places that people want to live and work. And I do think the health needs to come into that more. It's something possibly that we haven't had enough of. But in terms of what can you actually deliver uh, and what, what there is no formal definition anywhere. And so we have to be very, very, very careful that we don't layer on another policy on top of you know, the, the general sort of approach to environmental and sustainable uh, development, because it is then just another box to tick. And we have to be very careful that it doesn't, social value doesn't become a box ticking exercise. It has to be something that is embedded in the design from the start. And I think it's part about community involvement from the start creates a scheme that you can then deliver rather than it being just another policy that adds on top. There's a ripple of people wanting to respond to box ticking. Yeah, if I may, just in response to that, granted, and yes, theoretically, but we live in a world where humanity faces the greatest existential mm -hmm. threat. We are going to die if we do not, all of us, and the planetary, you know, the planet, well, the planet will survive in some form, but every single species will be impacted, including the human species. And one of the challenges that we're grappling with at Newham, when, you know, outside of my day job as the mayor of Newham, I'm the portfolio lead for inclusive economy and strategic housing delivery under which planning development sits under. So I'm engaging quite heavily with local planning authority colleagues around planning policy. We're trying to meet our climate emergency response targets, but we're being constrained and held back by the national planning policy framework that talks to social value and the environment, precisely because there's not clarity of definition. So there's a, a local level, a hesitancy and a risk averseness about embracing and enabling a credible response to the climate emergency, which then undermines the intent behind the national policy and London plan. Did you want to? Um, I was going to sort of pick up on the health point actually and sort of linking it to planning a bit more because for me when we think sort of starting to define social value but thinking about the tools we have to deliver it, planning was born out of tackling health inequality. Mm -hmm. So planning was born post uh, in the Victorian times after rapid industrialization where there was lots of poor housing and really poor health 
and it was the Victorians who thought, hold on, we actually need to have a vision and think about how places are designed and created and managed and balanced in terms of those different needs. So for me, that kind of planning is integral to defining and being the fore, yeah, holding social value. Yeah, I, I think there's a real danger of, of overcomplicating and getting bogged down in definitions. This is about improving health and wellbeing for communities. And it's, people have said tick box, it's absolutely not a kind of, you know, row in the appraisal where yeah. you go, oh yeah, we're going to have to bung some money in because the planning authority is going to make us. It's, you know, it's the opposite of that. It's about thinking in planning your development, in thinking about your development, in engaging in the process of putting together your development proposal and thinking about how are we going to make sure we, we maximise the benefits for the local community of doing this? How is this not just a kind of process of extracting wealth and disappearing, but how is it actually an investment in the community? And that doesn't have to cost more money, but it does require a lot more thought. Yeah, I think it would be quite important that it doesn't become just another, as you say, another report yeah. that gets mm -hmm. annexed to a planning application. Because whilst that the idea of that is to try and capture and report it, I actually just think it should be across the whole you know, as you say, the design, but the, the development of the scheme. I, I personally think that actually the planning system can capture and, and identify social value. And I think most uh, planning applications would, would highlight the public benefits that they bring. And that's fundamentally social value, a public benefit. It'd be interesting to perhaps debate what the difference is between a public benefit and social value, because that is actually how planning decisions are made, uh, to balance impacts mm -hmm. and public benefits. But I guess the, the difficulty lies that some social value or public benefits can differ depending on the observer. Hmm. So you can have somebody who's you know, struggling to rent a, an apartment, who can't afford local prices, wants to stay locally. For them, a public benefit is an affordable apartment that they have, but I mean in the least of senses, and they can afford to, to live in it, versus somebody who, for them, a public benefit is not seeing a tall building at the end of their street. They, see, they perceive that as a, as a benefit to themselves. So there, there is a tension in terms of what other people, how people, you know, needs or desires differ in terms of their, what impacts their quality of life. And that's the difficulty that planning has. It has to balance all of that up and do what's right. And I think fundamentally, um, social value is about doing what's right as opposed to necessarily sort of what um, sort of some framework says. That you need to do. I think. Uh, sorry, you go. You go. No, go on. Sure. Um, I was going to say. I think. I think as well. You know, there are methods of sort of looking at this issue, but I think it's really. It's an obvious point, but does need to be bespoke and local. And you, you make it right. You know, it's, those issues are going to vary. You know, not even within a borough or a street, but actually, who are the people that are going to be impacted? And I think. It has to be evidence-based and yes data can go a long way and you know as we move into a digital planning era there's a lot of digital data sets can help with like the cold hard facts but also just needs to be part of your community engagement strategy and I think there are some developers out there that are really good at this now and actually they see it as an advantage to development by really engaging with the community um, and I can't really think of an example that I've known about where good design has had negative consequences you know we, we, we spoke didn't we about quality of life in people's mm -hmm. lives but just having great public realm or improving connectivity so someone can walk to school, not have to, you know, just things like that add value to development. But it has to be, I think, in an understanding of what is key to that locality. And it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but I think we need to, to have a go and make sure that we're not just coming down from on high and saying, this is how you do social value, because it really does vary. But, but it's not just about the end state, where you get to, it's about how you 
get there. So, mm. um, and, and particularly, mm. I think if you're doing a large development over many years, actually, what's the process of, of um, engaging communities while that development's ongoing? Are you using local labour? Are you using local supply chains? Are you putting in meanwhile uses so that it's not just like all the negativity of living next to a horrible building site, but you've got some benefits? So, it's, I think it's important that we don't just expect the planning system to say when this is all done it will be great but actually as we're doing it will it be great for the community as well i think it's also that we're talking about really big things here you know we're talking about the climate emergency and things it's not the planning systems you know it's not the planning system that's going to solve all of these things the planning system has a part to play in it but the whole development industry you know it's really big issues here that we we all ought to be working together to deliver and the importance of creating good homes and places people are proud to live in and social cohesion is really important and it's not just about saying the planning system imposes this on me we should be actually looking at it from the start that there's benefit to everyone if we do these things well so here's the important question then we, we talked about some developers get it some developers isn't enough right to what you've just said Kirsten. this has to be everyone it has to be every part of the the real estate sector delivering on this not just not just planners not just architects not just some developers um how do we get everyone to whether it's buy-in because they see you know, monetary value in it or um, whether they uh, understand that this is our lives <laughs> at state. How do, we ha how do we have that conversation in a way that actually lands with everyone? So I think there are a couple of things there. The bigger schemes, the big regeneration schemes, the public-private partnership schemes, you know, those seem to have that longer-term vision they start from, from really engaging with who you are going to have living in these schemes, who's going to be working there, who's going to be you know, playing there, you know, what, what is it we want to do, those schemes. I think we can see how there's good examples of how they've worked. I think the ones where we're struggling more are one-off buildings. Well, how does someone actually help to deliver that? You know, you can design a good building. You can meet the criteria of, of environmental sustainability of a building, but how does one person deliver or one building deliver? And I think that's when we creep into this concern around, well, does it then become a, well, there's a social value policy that means I've got to pay towards something, and I think that's where we start to have a problem. I think the bigger schemes, I mean, there's great examples of where you've done, you've done some great things. It's those small schemes. How do we get those to work? And that's something I don't think we've yet got the answer to, but how do we collectively put all of those small schemes together to create some social value in an area? Well, I, I actually think that, I don't mean to sound offensive about developers, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think there is a point to be made that I think that actually it's not communicated very well how much social value is brought about mm -hmm. by development. People do talk about development and often quite negatively as if, you know, all developers are evil and uh, development's always uh, impactful on people in a negative way. But we don't talk about how actually the, you know, uh, the benefits and, and actually the amount of money that is, you know, paid by developers to bring about all sorts of different elements of social value. So SIL and Section 106 payments, mm -hmm. Um, they obviously pay for things like education, um, they pay for open space, um, you know, there's a whole list of different things that you can, you can see if you, I mean, I, I just logged on um, a couple of weeks ago and had a look at a couple of outer London boroughs, um, neither one <laughs> of the boroughs on, on the stage. But uh, 
I was really interested to see that in one year, each borough receives 10 or 11 million pounds in payments from developers. And, and yeah, they went on all sorts of different things, um, community safety initiatives, fibre connectivity. This doesn't get talked about. Um, what also doesn't get talked about is the sort of um, the, the sort of secondary impacts of building new homes, for instance. And I was really interested in the GLA report that came out this summer that talked about how um, you know sort of small increases in uh, housing stock, even private housing stock, can reduce prices locally. And the secondary and tertiary impacts of that, how housing gets freed up in um, lower value areas I, I mean i've got some stats if people want to hear but i thought it was really interesting there were there were different pieces of research from around the world one one of them from the us identified that 100 market rate homes free up 40 to 70 homes in low income neighborhoods of which um, 17 to 40 are in very low income uh, areas uh, and that's mostly within three years um, there's another one in helsinki that showed for every 100 market rate homes 66 are freed up in low income, um, in, in the immediate neighbourhood within two years, of which 30 were in areas uh, where incomes were in the bottom 20%. These stories don't get told, and our, all of us know that building more homes is a good thing, but it doesn't actually get talked about in that sense about how there's a ripple-down effect as well. Now, as somebody who obviously focuses primarily on delivering affordable housing, it sounds a bit strange that I'm making this point about market housing, but obviously delivering affordable housing has an immediate and much better impact but it's not a bad thing if people are delivering market rate housing too. Um, I think part of the problem in terms of, um, in terms of that point around the big regeneration schemes is that there is a real difference. And as somebody who's worked, um, my background's actually delivering large multi-phase regen, and now I'm mainly delivering much smaller schemes. Um, it makes a really big difference how big your scheme is and whether or not you're gonna be a long-term investor or not yeah. in, that, in that building. Um, because if you are a trader developer, you're somebody who comes along, you build a building, and you, you walk away from it. You have to walk away from it because you know you need to recycle the capital and move on to the next project. And what, what often happens is that obviously the, the building maintenance or the public realm around the building, uh, and I think everybody agrees that this is the right thing to do, which is that it's passed over to the residents and they manage their own service charge. Well, sometimes they don't want to pay for the landscaping, and the mm. landscaping then suffers. And so there's a, there is a problem there. And obviously that's where Section 106s will come in and they can um, require the maintenance of the, um, of the landscaping. But ultimately that has to run with the land because a developer can't accept something that 50 years later they need to be replacing some shrubs that died. Mm. Um, because you, know, you, you can't carry on having that liability growing with every scheme that you do. But you're expecting this public sector to continue having that liability. And here's, for me, the point, <coughs> reflecting on what you've said. Granted, development per se is not a bad thing, but I think it's really, I think we need to caution against exceptionalising the benefits that can be accrued from private developers who actually make excessive profits in the context of an era where we're facing a catastrophic housing crisis and London is carrying 60% of England's temporary accommodation households, number one. Number two, development brings with it a reaction from 
indigenous populations that are impacted by what broadly is termed as gentrification. And I think we need to challenge that language, but conversely, need to think deeply about the consequences of development when new people come in and actually the sense of heightened grievance that leads to. Two examples, real life examples I can give you, one that came into my inbox this week. There's a neighbourhood in my borough, East Ham. I stepped into office in 2018 as Mayor of Newham. Under the previous administration, previous council, Newham divided into two arc of opportunity where all the investment was coming in because Olympics was coming to London. Uh, from the from that stretch in the north of the borough, and it's a marvel to see what's emerged, don't get me wrong. Down the Lee Valley into the Royal Docks, London's only enterprise zone, the rest of Newham designated urban Newham. That designation didn't lend itself to an equitable distribution of all the benefits accrued from the private development. And I am now challenged, rightly, by long-standing <coughs> members of my community that I grew up in saying, what on earth has the council done for us because we've been left behind? Number two, going back to the email in the inbox that came into my, uh, to me this week, uh, East Ham, the neighbourhoods, not been invested in for the best part of 20 years. Um, however, planning permission approved, you know, planning permission for some quite significant developments, including ones that we're leading under the auspices of our housing delivery company, Poplo Living. It's a private development, get an email, oh my God, East Ham is absolutely disgusting. I didn't sign up to buy this and you're failing me as a newcomer and I moved in in September 2022. Can you imagine how I feel, not as a mayor of Newham, but as someone who has grown up in Newham, my borough, with a newcomer telling me that Newham is shit? It's not actually, it's a beautiful place. We're doing masses. And I'm going to have to take this individual and the community that she's part of that have come to know, and I welcome them in this new development. So there's something about, you know, and, and talk, take them through a journey about what it is that we're doing. So that's an illustration of what we have to grapple with as a local authority that is enabling, because in part we have to, you know, we're set housing targets under the auspices of the London plan, but I'm having to manage and grapple with an indigenous long-standing community that feels left behind and a new community that's demanded more and more in one of the, you know, most deprived boroughs in the country. That's example number one, if I may just finish. The second is the um, Stratford Olympic Park Ward, a new, newly sort of designated ward in our borough largely Stratford Olympic Park footprint. The tenure mix has led to an embedded institutionalised, entrenched social divide. And three weeks ago, I was in a meeting of residents from that community from across all tenures. At the end of that meeting, a lady came up to me and she said, it is so great to have a mayor that is so passionate and purposeful about equity because I've moved in here, I've been placed in here 
through a registered provider, but I don't feel as if I belong. So these are the things, if everyone on this platform and in this audience is serious about social value, please, can we, through planning, but also through the entirety of the development process, start thinking about these things in a comprehensive and meaningful way that as, is actually going to have resonance with people? I think, for me, sort of reflecting on that, it's so much to do with time. <laughs> And I think social value takes time to build those trusts, build trust, build an understanding of what is required and the nuance of cultures and communities and, and the inequalities and the tensions. And it needs time, it needs an understanding and relationships with people. Um, and there's something for me about scale. And I think that's where I think the power of planning is, where you are able to look at places at a much more strategic, holistic view and think in a much more longer term process of what are we trying to achieve. On an individual kind of development site, I think it, it does become more of a feeling like a tick box exercise, whereas if you're thinking about it, and that's where I think local authorities and when there's strong leadership that's saying this is really important to us, you come and work with us if you believe in these values, that's when you see the difference. The challenge comes if you're thinking about this long-term view, you're thinking about bringing those right partners on board, um, but also you just think about where we are with local government and local councils. You've seen huge amounts of funding cuts with local authorities in the last 10 years. Planning teams have seen the biggest amount, well, one of the biggest amounts of cuts. Um, in two years, 75% of local authorities in the country won't have an up-to-date local plan. And that is actually, I think, the strongest tool councils have to make sure that this you're thinking about it strategically and in a long-term vision. So um, it is a challenging environment and a challenging space, but we need that leadership um, and commitment to equality and social value that needs to come from the top and politically as well. Yeah, I, I think people are very disengaged. Um, most people, I mean, if you look at the turnout rates in local elections, and we all know that obviously local elections directly feed into the decision-making process. I think, I think that generally the planning system can deliver really good social value, but I just, I do think we should debate whether or not actually the, the, the needs of, uh, of, of the sort of local electorate is that well reflected if actually is the people who tend to turn out for the local elections are often of a particular demographic. Um, I think there needs to be a much better story told to people as to why they should engage with the local elections and actually take a, a really active part, therefore. Yeah. Even though it's quite passive, actually, you just go and vote. You don't have to be too active. You don't have to necessarily support um, or object. Uh, you know, I have a postal <laughs> vote like I do. I love it. Um, uh, but you could, you know, that way you can actually directly influence who gets elected and therefore what the outcomes are. But the, prob the problem is at the moment that doesn't necessarily happen. Yeah. And I think that there are so few people, and, and it's generally the younger people who, if there was more housing delivery, their housing costs would be the ones that, that, that would benefit, who, for example, but if they did feel more passionately about other things, that would obviously also come through the, the electoral process. 
Um, before you go, Roxanne, yeah. sorry, Lucy, I want to come to you because I, I feel like this all ties in with and what you were saying right at the beginning about you know, starting early and this being mm. about mm. a much wider conversation than just um, taking a scheme to, de to development. It, it has to start with consultation and really understanding and having honest conversations with people. Yeah, I think that's right, and it's 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 not easy. I mean, just the stats about local plans just there. I mean, that is a huge challenge because we do have a, a plan-led system. But ideally, I think it definitely has to come down to partnerships and those relationships that are public-private sector. Because I do think it's very difficult for a single, say, a private developer, you know, might be one building, couple of buildings, to come and take on almost like a huge responsibility for a whole area and make sure that they are having this meaningful change without understanding and having some idea of what the strategic aims are for that locality so but local plans aside and obviously it's absolutely not ideal but I do think policy does have a role to play in this because you know there are carrots and there are sticks in our world and I do think you do need some sticks just to create a bit of a level playing field because then the market will adjust and then things are fairer but absolutely so if we forget local plans and you know imagine it's all perfect but even without that yeah, absolutely. It's just having that straight, honest conversation at the beginning. So, you know, with, with, with your officer, with, you know, with community groups. And as I said, in London, there are some, some fantastic examples. Um, but I think if done early, it doesn't have to be seen as another hurdle. Because really, it's just, it should smooth the way through planning. And which is, you know, very resource constrained, but ultimately create a development that's deliverable, which is going to add value. So I don't ever think there's harm in engaging early. I don't think you really lose anything. Um, might as well be honest. I think that's absolutely right. And what I would say is coming to that engagement with humility and listening. I've seen so many examples of developers arriving in conversations with communities and the tone of what they're saying is, so the things that are wrong with the place you live now that we're going to fix are, and, you know, and of course... People are, you're on the back foot at that point mm. because people love where they live, whatever its strengths and weaknesses. And if you come to them and tell them what's wrong with it, they're not going mm. to thank you. I do sometimes, I don't very often have sympathy with the development industry, but I do have sympathy. I think like councils, you do suffer a little bit from the kind of Monty Python, what have the Romans ever done for us? Because I do sort of hear communities say, well, you know, this, this development's brought no benefits for us. And we say, oh, well, what about the park? Oh, yeah, the park's great. But apart from that, <laughs> the development's brought no benefits. Well, what about the apprenticeships? Oh, well, the apprenticeships are great and yeah. the park's great. But apart from that, we've had no benefits. So there is a, there is a little bit of, mm -hmm. of a sense that people, people will, will bank the benefits and still notice the disbenefits. So I do recognise that. But that's not to say that we shouldn't be better at, yes, telling the story of what mm -hmm. benefits we've brought, but also actually listening and understanding what benefits people really want and what they value, rather than assuming that we know what they value and, and delivering that. I think as well, just on, um, sorry, just on, on valuing, I mean, absolutely, I think, so for developers to be, can be quite honest about the challenges they're grappling with and the things they're trying to balance and like, you know, it's a bit of cold, harsh economics around it can actually help, you know, rather than just presenting a couple of ideas and say, oh, it's this or that, but actually just explain more about the different challenges. But also, I mean, I don't know, I think it was last year, but I know do luck, there was a government paper out on updating Green Book to look at social value. And I think half the problem is, is when you're looking at a balance sheet in the bottom line, yeah, we are very focused on economic value and valuing those intangible benefits is just tricky. You know, environmental economics, etc. is difficult. So I haven't read the paper front to back, but I know there's a, it's on the government website, DLUC, and they do look at social value, so it might be worth a look at that. There's your bedtime reader. I'm going to throw out to the audience in case there are any questions out there. Do not be shy. 
a mic will come your way. Yes, please, gentlemen, here. Hi, uh, my name's Billy, I'm from Bidwell. So we've got the planning process itself and the mechanisms. Um, and if we think about it and break it down, we've got the local plan process, we've got planning applications, and then we've got section 106s um, and SIL that can all come from that. Um, and it just feels like the social value within all of that is a bit disjointed just because it comes from so many different areas. Do you think there is a mechanism where all of that can be packaged into one and presented to communities and to developers so there's a bit more transparency? It's a good challenge. <laughs> I, I would say it's challenging and I would say in some no, but... I think the point made earlier around clear, strong local leadership and articulating vision about place certainly does work. And what I've witnessed since 2018, given the scale of development and investment coming into Newham, the willingness of major developers to conform to the vision of place that we have. Say they all talk a language of inclusive growth, community wealth building, uh, acknowledging, surprisingly, issues of systemic racism and inequality. And I think that's been accelerated as a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic, which brought into sharp focus, as I said earlier, all those social determinants of health inequality that disproportionately impacted certain types of communities, uh, particularly those in the global south in London, and that was pretty horrifying. So I think it's a challenge because you will just have competing philosophies from national, regional and local, but there's always uh, being a half glass full person, a sweet spot that you can arrive at. Thank you. So, question here as well. Hi, uh, Sarah McCready from Barking Riverside. Um, when we look at social value and social impact, it tends to get quite academic quite quickly mm. because we're talking about data and measurement. And I think as professionals, whilst that sometimes feels comfortable for us, for residents, for communities, that can be really inaccessible. And to some of the examples that Roxana gave, I think for the communities, it's not a thinking thing, it's a feeling thing, social value. It's whether you feel purpose, belonging and pride in the place that you live and you know that very instinctively. So how do we kind of square the circle between those two things, this very academic measurement and this thinking and feeling mm -hmm. um, place that we need to be in with residents and what language do we use um, to make this more meaningful for communities? I love that question. Who's going yeah. for it? Okay. Yeah. I, I'm actually really anti the measurement and certainly monetizing social value because I think it comes back to the point I made right at the beginning which is it's about doing the right thing. It's about doing what makes people have good lives. Um, and I think that speaks to the points that Roxana was making as well. It's, it's, it shouldn't sit as a separate thing that is in its own category. It should sit across everything. And that's where it should just, you know, and I, th I believe it is generally embedded in, in planning policy. There are areas where it can be improved. Everything can always be improved. But that's the point at which it kind of needs to be captured. And we just need to make sure in my view, that there isn't a sort of intergenerational issue in terms of how those priorities are then played out in practice in planning. And that's, that's kind of one of my biggest concerns. 
just jump in about messaging? I think as well, just whatever information we are trying to get out there, um, we need to we need to be cognizant of different groups, and that's not just um, you know um, sort of different communities in terms of ethnicity, but also age. And we know you know age comes up hugely in terms of there's a particular demographic who are usually people who are retired or maybe have lived there a long time who are usually anti-development. And there's a huge youth out there that are going to be living with climate change and with all these issues long after we're gone. And like digital, social media, apps, I just think we need to kind of move with the times a bit and make sure we're engaging people in a way that they want to get involved in. And also on messaging, particularly around any kind of environmental, social, economic data, you know, graphics, simple summaries that, you know, on a nice, beautiful, coloured page, just really simple ways of engaging the audience rather than it being lost in a long, waffly word document. So I think it's how as well as what information we're getting across. I think that point about it's not just languages, it's images is really important. Mm -hmm. um, I think those of you that are in the industry might want to go and have a look at your hoardings and the images <laughs> on your hoardings um, and tell me how, how many of the professionals are white and how many of the black people are cute little kids and whether you're actually reflecting the city which you serve in the images you put on your hoardings, because certainly I've been around some sites and, and you would not, you do not, if you were a member of the local community, you do not see yourself on those images. Um, and that, that automatically alienates people and, you know, that, that's not really very good, is it? What a great challenge. You're going to send an EG photographer. <laughs> uh, we have a question here as well. I'm Kemi Ayodele from Argent. I think when we talk about social value um, in the planning process, um, it needs to be outriving and a key outcome if, as a member of a local community is social mobility. You know, as a Londoner, a developer comes into my community to do this massive urban regeneration. How does that improve my lot and improve my community's lot? How am I able to afford to live and continue to live in my community in 20 years' time after the developers actually finishing what they need to do. You know, it's, I'm trying not to use the word gentrification, but <laughs> that's essentially what I'm trying to explain. And I think an outcome that the planning process really should be looking about, and this is about long-term thinking, it's about three decades, four decades, is social mobility. You know, how do we improve the lot of our community so they don't have to leave after urban regeneration. They can continue to stay there. They can continue to push the culture. And you can continue to have that authenticity that's made the developer come there in the first place. I mean, I don't know if the panel wants to respond to that. Well, there's a reason why we picked Argent Related as our, related Argent as our yeah. partners, right? That's it. <laughs> but I think that is going back to that point about understanding the community that you're developing in in the first place and understanding the, the challenges that they've got because you know, your, your, your comments about you know, we, we've created a new bit of uh, new room and, and have left other bits behind, that doesn't, it doesn't, that's not, you know, developers wouldn't think that that is, a, you know, they would have thought they've done a good thing for a borough but maybe they're just not thinking enough at the, at the start so we do need to put it back in the local plan process yeah, and that does mean we have to have a longer term thinking than the scheme right now and I, but I do also accept we can't stop developing while we're trying to put all these plans in place so we have to look there is a plan that has to look longer term and we must look at our communities but there will be some smaller schemes that need to carry on or else we we, we just sit and we wait and that 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 can't be right we've got to balance two things there long term and short term 
There has to be some short term. I mean, I would also suggest that local planning policy is also constrained, constrained, sabotaged, because in that instance where you talk quite, you know, passionately about the need for assurance <coughs> and a commitment both from the local authority and developers that they're in there for the long, long haul and people won't be displaced. Therein lies one of the challenges, you know, around viability and there's always a negotiation. Um, I can cite a number of sites in Newham where precisely what you describe has happened and I have spent the best part of my last five years as Mayor of Newham trying to neutralise the cynicism around development generally and trying to decouple local authority-led regeneration, which is not about gentrification. It's about a cross-subsidy to allow us to build more genuinely affordable <coughs> homes for you, your family, and you know the long-standing community to stay and live but I'm going to also be equally honest with you. I've got 37,000 people on the housing waiting list and I've got 7,000 people in temporary accommodation and I'm not going to be able to borrow as much money as I need to in order to build the homes in five years. Can I just add one point about, it's probably the topic for a whole other sort of panel, but I, I do think um, skills and the accessibility of the development industry as a whole is a really important factor mm. here and I know I'll just mention one example that I know about which is the Mount Anvil and Mayor of London Movers and Makers mentoring scheme but I think so long as our development industry is not representative of the communities that we are developing it's never going to be great and I think the more we can do as an industry to whether it's and, and again developers social value you know schools outreach partnering with colleges or just apprentices work experience any that even little things that we can each do will make a huge difference just in improving those life chances because, as you said, there is no equity. There's people who are very, very privileged who have access to all of these you know, ways onto the careers ladder. And I think in time, in generations, that should filter through if, if we can all do something. Um, I think it's really important. Fantastic. If there are any more questions out, out there in the audience, please place your hand. Look at this. Everyone's talking. Questions. I love this. Ooh. Hi, it's uh, Luca from RTMS Real Estate. Um, I think there was a lot of discussion around the kind of early engagement, making sure that the kind of development does what the community needs. I guess a question for me as well is, as developers, we also bring a lot of new communities to the existing one. And I think uh, Mayor Fias, who's about to leave, was mentioning about how there is a real challenge and friction between the community that's coming in and the community that's already there. So a question to the panel is, do you think developers can do a bit more, and maybe not as a planning process, maybe as a planning process, to actually be that kind of bridge between the existing and the new community because I have a feeling that as developers we typically would develop something and that's where the job ends and yes it's part of the planning process of building something but how do you make sure that everybody you bring in and we talked about what you do on hoarding what you do can you actually do a bit more to educate your people whether they're occupiers whether they're residents coming into the area to learn more about the area before they come in I think that sort of assumes that people haven't done haven't looked into it themselves. I, I fear that that might come across as a bit patronising. Um, I think most people do make very well-informed decisions. I think most people, when they move into a new area, they do think very carefully about where they move to. Um, people tend to move 
for very significant reasons and usually it's around wanting to, um, to improve their circumstances. Um, particularly if it is a new home, it's going to be either rented or, or um, uh, you know, if purchased or um, perhaps um, if they're an affordable housing tenant, they're probably somebody who's reasonably local already. Um, I think there are going to obviously be instances where you have this kind of friction, um, but that, can, that friction can also happen because you're bringing two groups of people who are really quite different together, and that can happen in different ways. And so if you bring, for example, affordable housing, and so Pocket Living, we've delivered a lot of discount market <coughs> sale housing into an area that doesn't have much affordable housing. Um, people can be a little bit sort of, the people who are there already can be quite, I suppose, resistant to that. And I think that's just about people needing to sort of have time to get to know each other. And I, I appreciate Roxana had that really difficult email, but I think most people in London do tend to get on with living cheek by jowl with very different people. I think as a as a city generally, where we most people are pretty tolerant um, of sort of differences in in people and come from different walks of life, uh, and they're usually very welcoming and understanding. But I think, I think it's not the developer's job to matchmake between residents and old existing residents and new residents, which I think is kind of part of your question, but maybe if, if I picked it up wrongly, then it's... It's more, it's more what can we do to actually create those opportunities for different communities to meet? Because basically, mm. if you design a building that is essentially, say you're an occupier, have a big reception, <laughs> that is a no-zone for the local community, there is no chance of actually, you know, what the new occupier uses a building and the existing community to actually find a, a, a kind of a point to meet. And I guess the question was, is there something that can be done to actually open that up and to educate people about what's around them? I agree with you that a lot of people potentially say, well, I've done all my research, but I'll be honest with you, when I go into a new office building, I haven't done all the research about the local area that I'm going into, and actually if there was a developer, an architect, or somebody that actually spent five years thinking about the, the building and the community and engaging, passing on the button and telling me a bit more about what's out there, what communities live there, for me personally, would be quite helpful. So that, that was really the question. What can we do to actually create that incidental interaction and the link between the two, rather than just saying, well, we built this now, it's up to you to sort it out, guys, because you know we're done now. And I think that was really my question. Is there anything we can do more than just kind of say, we've done our job, we consulted, we're done. Um, or can we stay engaged beyond that? I would say like the starting point is what I would define as good design mm -hmm. and I think we would design out all of those opportunities which are truly public spaces, places where people from different parts of the world, different experiences come together and meet accidentally. I don't know if Londoners are actually that welcome and open to different communities. I think different people in this room would ha probably have quite different experiences to that. So I think um, I come from a country where we live very communally. I knew everyone in block, everyone knew what we were doing. I don't feel that same sort of knowing know-how of everyone on my street in London, but where there are places where people meet, those are the places that I think we need to invest in and those are our public spaces. And secondly, I think there's different ways um, there's different like programming um, approaches different developers can take, whether it's 
offering truly like good markets where you're actually giving local people opportunities to sell things and you create moments of events or um, you know close the streets for kids to play and it's that sort of other way of thinking about how you use space differently and create opportunities for people to meet rather than being perhaps fairly heavy-handed about it. I think there is there is a distinction there you've just I, I think when you said developers doing sort of uh, programs of mm -hmm. markets that's probably that sounds to me like it's somebody who's got a long-term ownership yeah. and there is this distinction and I think we have to keep in mind when we say developers or what we're actually talking about is long-term investors. They might be developing as part of that investment, but that is a completely different category to a typical developer. I wouldn't underestimate the value of social media spaces either for creating communities. I mean, I think, you know, I don't know about other people, but I'm on Leytonstone Life, and I feel a lot more connected to the <laughs> community of Leytonstone by knowing much more about what's going on, see, you know, seeing comments from different people, knowing the reaction that, it gets when anyone mentions cycling, but you know there, there is a huge kind of there is a huge community of people that don't get to meet physically very often, but do get to come across like-minded people online. Um, you know our street WhatsApp group started as a wholly, you know, wholly electronic thing, and now somebody will go, oh, top of the road is looking really messy. Anyone want to go and do a bit of litter picking? And half a dozen people go do a bit of litter picking. And I know my neighbours now in a way I didn't know them. 15, 20 years ago, and it's all social media facilitating mm -hmm. human interaction and being maybe the first and easiest meeting place before you try and meet physically. I'm really, I'm really conscious of time, and I know there are more questions out there, and of course I want to finish with one, because we all know how demanding <laughs> I am. Uh, so there's a question here, and I think there was one... No, it's gone. Hello, I'll try and make it quick. Sorry. Yeah, Philip fine. Turner, I'm an architect at AHMM Architects. I've got a question, I think it's as simple as, Sill, is it... Is it any good? Um, <laughs> but, but I mean to say that, that yeah. it's been a panel, a lot of which is the anecdotal social accounts of communities. We all want an equitable city, and SIL has the capacity to transfer money between boroughs through mayoral SIL, and it's been in, it's been in for about 15 years, I think, so mm -hmm. that we should be able to know by now can't be spent on housing, but it can be spent on lots of other things that benefit communities. So, is it working? Do we need to do it differently? Should there be more of it? What, what do we think of SIL? I think it's a bit like democracy. It's terrible, <laughs> but it's better than all the other systems we've tried. That's a good summary. That's a good answer. Uh, that, that, must, that must be right. It is you know, pooling contributions... Uh, particularly when we're talking about shorter-term development as opposed to the longer-term schemes, pooling those contributions and making them work, you know, using it for pedestrianisation of areas when there isn't one person who's got control of it and the, the public sector can pull that together, that must be a system we're using. Whether it, the funds move fast enough or release schemes quick enough I think that's that's a very difficult question. I think we, we'd love to see it moving faster, but the principle mm. must be right. That, and yeah, and you I think pool contributions yeah, like the greater benefit. And in practice, it's because local authorities are under so much financial pressure, it's plugging holes in local authority capital programmes that are not necessarily very tangibly adding value if actually what it's doing is repairing roads that should be repaired using capital contributions from central government. So. Yeah. 
Anyway, I'm in a politically restricted role, so I'll stop talking there. <laughs> I mean, there are enormous sums of money. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if anybody knows how much typically gets collected as sale in London, but I've got a stat from 2020 to 21, and it was 1.14 billion. It's huge. It's a huge sum of money, and this is part of my point of we don't really explain what it does. No. So nobody knows. So yeah. nobody knows that it's sorting out the roads. Surface so down the road, and then it's the new play equipment in the park came from that, or you know whatever the revamped public realm in the city in the town centre. Um, so I think it is, it, it's it's but it is also a very blunt tool when you've got developments that are very varying yeah. uh, mm -hmm. in terms of what type of um, development they're delivering. You might have a different rate for residential and office, but it might be a completely different type of residential and office. And the scale of the scheme might be completely different depending on, um, you know, and that really impacts the how, how viable and how marginal the scheme is. So yes and no. <laughs> There's a clock down here and it's gone red. <laughs> so yeah, we do have um, 50 seconds until I think they turn off the lights. But uh, Usually I ask each of our panellists to give something for the audience to take away, something for them to, to do. But I'm going to turn that around a little bit this, this time. And, you know, here are five amazing people in very powerful roles. And so I'm going to ask you, what's the one thing that you can do that enables proper social value to Im be embedded, not in the planning process, but actually in our communities. Lucy, you are unfortunately oh, closest to me. Goodness. I have to say, I was going back to the, the bit about the street WhatsApp group, and I think just simple things that we as individuals can get involved with that. So I love the litter picking example, but you know, helping neighbours or supporting your local school, everything like that, if we all did that, it all adds up. And I did want to do a poll to see who has a street WhatsApp group, which is because I'm really interested. <laughs> but can I, do you mind if I ask that? Who's on a WhatsApp group with, or apartment block? Or it, I mean, that's amazing that that came out of the pandemic, basically. And I think if we just engage in our communities, as little actions all add up. Thank you. So, um, I think probably as a council, be clearer about our expectations uh, and clearer and consistent about what we think good looks like so that it makes you guys, it's easier for you guys to engage with. I'm going to try and persuade every single voter under the age of 40 to go and vote in the local elections. Good. <laughs> I'm, going a, I'm going to double down on my efforts. Uh, I think to stop making assumptions and to call out when, I'm, when I think someone's making an assumption about you know, a, a community or you know something that they're looking at, you know, they're assuming they understand what the, the, the people who live there really are thinking. I think we just make massive assumptions about people who are actually asking the questions. Um, I think maybe advocating for the sector and the role we can play in contributing to social value. I don't think it's very understood. I don't think our sector is understood by young people, by the public. People don't think that by doing planning or development they can actually improve people's lives. So I think that's what I'll continue to do. Thank you very much. I hope everyone agrees that this has been a really fascinating discussion. I thought early on we were going to go dark quite quite quickly, uh, but I feel like at the end we've, we've, we've lifted it up a little bit, and there is so much that this industry can do to um, properly embed social value. We are seeing it, and we can all make a difference. It's up to every one of us here. But please, everyone, put your hands together for our fantastic... Panel.